Turn to the book of Malachi. Um, uh, if you've been around for a while, it should be a little bit easier for you to find, perhaps, right at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, right at the end of the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew, the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. While you're turning there, uh, I would just like to uh, remind you that it is a tremendous privilege for me and joy for me to stand before you and ask you to turn in your Bibles. Uh, there is no greater joy in my life than, than being able to stand before you and be able to open God's word um, and, and speak it to you. There's no better place I'd rather be this morning looking at God's word than with you today. Um, <laughs> I don't deserve your listening, but God's word does. And thanks for letting me be able to read it to you this morning. So Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. And another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Why isn't God listening to us? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she's your partner. She's the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are His. And why did He make them one? Why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Uh, if you walk into our kitchen and you look on the far wall, you'll find a clock hanging there. It's a simple pine clock with some scroll work and a few curves in the top and the bottom. Uh, it's hung in every home that we've had since we got married. It was a wedding present, that clock was. Uh, it was handmade by a dear friend of ours, uh, a man that I have described to you before, named Vernon Saunders. Uh, Vernon and his wife Gertie were influential in our family's life. Uh, they were a part of my home church, uh, and they adopted my sisters and I as uh, grandkids. Uh, they took us out for our birthdays. They invited us over to their homes. Uh, we had a great time as kids uh, with Grandma and Grandpa Saunders. They loved on us. Uh, and when Kathy and I got married, uh, Vernon gave us a clock that he had made. <laughs> One day last year, my daughters were playing in the kitchen. Uh, they were not being outrageous. They were just being uh, childish. And in their exuberance, they knocked the clock off the wall. 
I was in the living room and I came out when I heard the crash and I saw the clock on the floor and my daughter staring at it in horror. I would like to say that at that moment I responded calmly and patiently and graciously. Um, Instead, I actually spent the next few minutes speaking to them about being careless and disrespectful. There was a still, small voice in my head that kept saying, um, remember, your kids are more valuable than anything you own. That still, small voice in my head. I answered it and I said, maybe not this time. <laughs> Do you understand how I felt at that moment? Um, that clock is embedded with some significant symbolic meaning to me, and I hated to see it uh, uh, damaged. You, you must know what that feels like, don't you? Uh, it's that feeling that you get when someone uh, scratches the car you just bought for the first time. That was also my children. Um, or uh, maybe when, when someone chipped one of your grandmother's china cups. Uh, some of you, being more wise and mature than I am, uh, are not attached to objects like that. Uh, but do you have anything in your house like my clock? If you understand how I felt that day uh, when the clock hit the ground, then you probably can appreciate why in this passage I just read, God is so uh, strict as he is on divorce. Uh, marriage is one of God's best gifts. It's one of the most beautiful things that he made. He intends it to be a source of joy and blessing and peace, and God hates it when marriage is destroyed. Now, this is the second week we've had this passage of Scripture opened before us. Um, Last week, we talked about the context of this paragraph. God is concerned with how the people are breaking faith. That phrase, broken faith or break faith, is used six times uh, in these verses. Uh, To break faith is to be treacherous. It's to uh, turn your back on a covenant or treat a covenant as insignificant. And the Israelites, to whom this is addressed, had a very special relationship with God, a very special covenant with Him, and, and they are breaking that covenant or treating that covenant as if it doesn't matter. God says, my covenant with you is supposed to guard and guide your marriage. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is supposed to be formed and molded by the gospel that you bring into your marriage. But these men, particularly addressed to men or concerned with men, are, are, are profaning or they're saying that God's covenant doesn't matter by marrying women who don't care about God, who, who don't, are not in the covenant. And the second covenant that this passage mentions is the marriage covenant itself. Marriage is a covenant to which God himself is a witness, and they were breaking their covenant. Some were breaking the covenant by marrying foreign women who did not worship the same God, and some were breaking that covenant by divorce. Now, we focused mostly last week on the positive aspects of this passage, why God loves marriage, He intends it for your good. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss the opposite side of the issue, and I want to provide you, uh, in brief, in the the time we have just touching on the issue, uh, a biblical theology of divorce and remarriage. This is what we're going to do in the few minutes. I'm going to take you to a, a couple of key passages I want to see if we can get a handle on some of the things that the Bible says 
about divorce and remarriage. Uh, This is a hugely controversial issue. We're not afraid to talk about controversial issues in our congregation. Uh, We believe that God's Word speaks uh, to us. Uh, We're not afraid to tackle them. We're not afraid to disagree about them. We're not afraid to uh, uh, confront those outside of the church who think we're crazy for holding certain opinions. Uh, but even within the church, this is, this is a difficult issue. There are a range of good and godly men and women who hold different opinions. At one end of the spectrum, there are people who say that there are no restrictions in the Bible at all on divorce and remarriage. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who say that if you're a follower of Christ, you ought not to divorce or remarry at all under any circumstances, anytime, anywhere. Most Christians are somewhere in the middle. Um, They might say that divorce is okay under some circumstances, but not remarriage, or that divorce and remarriage are okay under certain circumstances. Just a range of opinions. I confess to you that I, I appreciate very much the view of marriage that the no divorce, no remarriage people have. They speak well about the covenant of marriage. They speak well about forgiveness. They speak well about loyalty and what that means. The reason I don't hold that position, though, is because there are passages of Scripture that draw me away from that. I just don't think you can hold that in light of some verses in the Bible. Uh, Several years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll say that we need to restrict what the Bible restricts and allow what the Bible allows. Now, we don't aim to be more tight than what the Bible itself says. Now, if you want to know more about this, uh, let me just give you a reference. It's a, a book that, uh, that I would recommend to you by a man by the name of Andreas Kostenberger. Now, if you want to know how to spell that, I'll tell you later. Kostenberger is his last name, and the book is called God, Marriage, and Family. If you were at uh, Mark Driscoll's sermon that, on marriage and men that the men's ministry sponsored last month, he recommended this book, and he was wise to do so. Uh, uh, Kostenberger writes uh, clearly. You'll be able to understand. The hardest part about the book would be able to remember how to pronounce his name. But uh, reading the book, is, uh, it's, it's clear, it's biblical, it's gracious. Uh, I highly uh, recommend it. Uh, divorce is an issue that touches every single one of us. Uh, you all know, um, and many of us are related to someone who has been divorced. So we're going to think clearly uh, and biblically about this together. And I have three basic statements about divorce and remarriage that I want to share with you and discuss this morning. So uh, let's begin. Here's number one. Ready? Divorce destroys God's good gift of marriage. Divorce destroys God's gift of marriage. <laughs> now, that's a, a simple statement. is isn't something that you know already. We start here, though, because this is where the Bible starts. Whenever you talk about divorce and remarriage, take a cue from Jesus and Paul and always start with what God intended, His perfect plan for marriage. What did God have in mind? What did God want when He created marriage? His plan is that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And that's God's plan. It's His plan A for your marriage. It's a good plan. Marriage was God's idea, and He intended it to be uh, for our blessing. This idea of one man, one woman, for life, married. It's God's will for your marriage. 
It's God's will for every marriage. And it has to be the background of every discussion that we have about divorce. That, that any time we're talking about divorce, it is in some way an aberration of God's good plan. It certainly was in Malachi's mind as he wrote that. Um, I want you to look at verse 16 and see, here's God's evaluation of divorce. Um, the text, my translation says, I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. Now, last week we talked about how verse 15 was difficult to translate. Verse 16 is only slightly easier. And if you have a different translation, yours might say something different. In fact, in the NIV, verse 16 attributes the hate to God. I hate divorce, says God. The ESV attributes the the hate to to the man who's divorcing, anybody who does not love his wife, the ESV says, and divorces her. Um, regardless, God doesn't approve of divorce. It's, it's violent work. It's like a man who covers himself with blood. The image is that if you go and you beat somebody uh, or, or you, you murder somebody and it's so gruesome that their blood splashes on your clothes you have covered yourself with your violence, right? God says, that's what divorce is like. It's such a bloody, violent, awful thing that you cover yourself with the gore of your work. That's how awful it is. Remember, if you're married, every day you are either building or hurting your one flesh relationship that God formed. You build it or you hurt it in dozens of little ways. In fact, your marriage is more affected by the thousands of tiny decisions that you make than by one or two big decisions that you make. Uh, let, me, let me give an example. Uh, John Gottman is a marriage researcher in Seattle. He's an expert in the external uh, behaviors of marriage. Uh, his failing as a marriage therapist, theorist, is that he doesn't deal with heart issues. He only deals with um, behavior, external behavior. He says that you can destroy your marriage with this behavior, um, how you start conversations with your spouse. He, he warns against harsh, what he calls harsh startups. A harsh startup. Uh, uh, think about how you begin relationships when you're having a, a problem with your spouse. You will destroy your relationship by how you begin these conversations. So, if you have a problem, do you, do you begin conversations like this? I need to talk to you about the checkbook. Or, where have you been? Or, do you know what you did to me again? Harsh ways to start conversations. That's a very small decision. That tone is a tiny little thing, isn't it? That attitude is just a small little thing. And you build or destroy your one flesh union by the tone, by words, by attitudes. And you do it every day, all day. The Bible uh, uh, says, uh, the Bible I know says to look beneath the, those comments and the tone at the heart attitude there. Uh, but, but do you think about how what you say and how you say it is building or hurting your one flesh union? Divorce is, is a violent thing. Now, if I were, I were sitting in the congregation and I was a divorced 
man or a divorced woman, I'd probably be reading these words in the text with some bit of, of sorrow, an awful lot of regret, and probably even some shame. Even, even if, if I was not a follower of Christ when I got divorced and I didn't really know any better, or um, even if, if uh, uh, I had been divorced for what, what uh, was counseled were, were biblical reasons, still this, this. <laughs> I, hate, I hate divorce. It, it's hard to read in the pages of the Bible that you've done something that God says, I hate, I hate this. How do you how do you tell people when you share your experience that you hate divorce too when when you have been divorced? How do you how do you tell people about all these experiences that you had and the things that you saw and the things that you endured? Do you know that this is not the only place in the Bible that talks about God hating something? Um, you know. Perhaps you're familiar with Proverbs 6. Let me read to you what it says. There are six things that God hates that are detestable to Him. Here's going to list. Haughty eyes. God hates haughty eyes. <laughs> I suppose that means if you're here and you're inclined to look down on someone who's been divorced because God hates it and you haven't been divorced, then you are doing something that God hates too. Haughty eyes. Uh, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. God hates that. A heart that devises wicked schemes. <laughs> I suppose if you've ever contemplated, or if you've never contemplated divorce, but you've ever contemplated murder, you might fall into this category, right? Uh, feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up a dissension among brothers. See, the truth of the Bible is that we all stand stained before God. This is how God finds us. We have all broken the clock in God's kitchen in some way. We all bear on our clothing the stains of our guilt. Uh, That's why I find one of Paul's uh, verses about marriage in Ephesians 5 so helpful. What does it say? Christ washes us. Um, Jesus is like a bridegroom who has found a bride passed out in a pigsty. And Jesus washes her off, sobers her up, does her hair, applies her makeup, clothes her in radiant garments. Jesus, He makes us clean through the work that He did on the cross. That song that we sing every now and then by William Cooper. uh, uh, The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He shed His own blood. He bore God's wrath so that our sins might be forgiven and removed, that we can stand before God fresh and clean. That's good news. Very good news. This morning we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, everyone who eats and drinks this bread, drinks the juice, has acknowledged their dirtiness before God. And they found cleansing in Christ. Joe Bailey wrote a poem about death. In one of his books called Psalms of My Life. It's a wonderful little poem. It's called The Psalm of Awakening. 
It's written from the perspective of a follower of Christ who dies and goes to heaven and God speaks to him in heaven and, and God says to him this, Here are your clothes, your clothes for heaven. Your older brother, Jesus, here are your clothes. Your older brother wore them first. Now they're yours forever, white and fresh and clean, smelling of heaven. Isn't that good news? Malachi tells us as we begin here about divorce. Face the reality, divorce destroys God's gift of marriage. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn me to the next book, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, Matthew 19. Matthew's right the next book from Malachi. In fact, it's easier to find than Malachi. And I want to uh, share with you something else, uh, a second principle about divorce and remarriage in the Bible that we find. Here it is, number two. The Bible allows divorce and remarriage for sexual immorality. The Bible allows divorce and remarriage for sexual immorality. So, Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test Him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, I think the Pharisees are asking Jesus this question because John the Baptist had just shared his opinion about Herod's divorce, the king's divorce, and it had cost John his life. And I think they're hoping that Jesus will make a similar statement and will be executed by Herod too, trying to get rid of Jesus. Verse 4, notice Jesus goes back to the beginning. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. The principle from Jesus. Why then, they asked, did Moses command... Now, notice they use the word command. They use the word command. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted. There's a difference, right? Jesus uses the word permitted. The Pharisees use the word demand. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now here is... I'll stop here. This is a phrase that's very important to those who hold to no divorce, no remarriage at all in the church because they say that the divorce allowances in the Bible are here only because of hard hearts and if you're a follower of Christ, you shouldn't ever have a hard heart. That's their opinion. The text continues. But it was not this way from the beginning. That is, divorce was not God's intention from the beginning. Verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, let's take here, verse 9 tells us the conditions under which divorce may occur. Uh, and um, look at it closely. If you take out that except phrase, this is how verse 9 says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. The standard principle in the Bible, except for one case, Jesus says. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, except unless there was marital unfaithfulness involved. I take verse 9 to say that if the divorce was legitimate, marital unfaithfulness, the remarriage is legitimate as well. 
At issue here is the meaning of this phrase, marital unfaithfulness. What is that? What does it mean? Um, this is not the word for adultery in the Bible. The word for adultery in the Bible is the Greek word moikia. Uh, this is a Greek word that you'll recognize, perhaps it's the Greek word porneia, uh, from which we get our English word pornography. Uh, it refers to uh, um, any behavior that violates the one flesh nature of your marriage. It's a broad word. It includes adultery, but it goes beyond adultery. To, to talk about any behavior that violates the one flesh sexual intimacy nature of your relationship. Um, uh, perhaps persistent pornography usage falls under this. Um, that's only been an issue that's been discussed in the church for the last 50 years. Uh, and more so these days. Uh, homosexuality, certainly, would fall into this category. It's a broad range of sexual immorality. I think the Bible here, Jesus in verse 9, is speaking to the innocent party in a situation where the one who is unfaithful is unrepentant. If, if the guilty person, if he or she repents and ask for forgiveness, then the Bible calls the innocent person to forgive and pursue reconciliation. There is no sense in any passage of the Scriptures where anybody should say, Ha ha! I'm the innocent person in this, and finally they messed up enough so that I can get out of this dump of a marriage. There's never a sense of that in the Bible. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a case where there is a person, an innocent person, who uh, has been uh, uh, the, whose spouse has violated uh, that one flesh union through sexual immorality of some kind, and Jesus is teaching uh, that that person, that innocent person, is free to remarry and is uh, uh, can be treated like an unmarried person, free to, to marry again. Now, let's move on to another passage, shall we? And um, uh, one more ingredient that I want to share with you in this biblical theology of divorce and remarriage. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. If you engage yourself in this study and you want to know more about it, I have discussed already Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 are the key passages in the debate. All right, 1 Corinthians 7. Here's principle number 3. The Bible allows for divorce and remarriage for abandonment. The Bible allows for divorce and remarriage for abandonment. All right, um, let's look at the text here. I want to begin reading in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7, 10. All right, um, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. There's the principle in the Bible, the general principle. And Paul says in verse 10, with that parenthesis, not I, but the Lord, he's saying, this is not just for me. Jesus said this himself. Jesus said that a wife must not separate from her husband. All right, now in verse 12, he's going to turn to an issue that Jesus never specifically addressed. That's why it says... To the rest I say this, parenthesis, I not the Lord. Jesus didn't say this. I am saying this as an apostle in the authoritative word of God, but Jesus never addressed this particular situation that I'm going to address right now. Here it is. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. 
And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. There is holy influence in that home, is what he's saying there. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He's talking about gospel influence in those kids. All right, verse 15, the uh, crucial part for today. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. The issue is here, what does the phrase not bound mean? Paul is speaking about a specific case where there's a believing husband and an unbelieving wife, or vice versa, a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. If the unbeliever leaves, uh, uh, the, the, the leaving spouse is not bound. What does that mean, to be not bound? I think the answer falls in verse 39. Look at verse 39, if you would, please. Same word Paul uses. 1 Corinthians 7.39 A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. Uh, but he must belong to the Lord. Paul's using the same word there, bound and not bound. Verse 39 says that you, as long as your spouse is alive, you're bound to them and you can't remarry somebody else. But, I think verse 15 says that an unbeliever who leaves means that the believing spouse is not bound. That is free to marry. I think this is the case where Paul is giving permission for an unbeliever who's been abandoned, uh, excuse me, a believer who's been abandoned by an unbeliever to remarry. These are the two exceptions that I can find in the Bible to God's prohibitions against divorce. I know of no other examples or no other exceptions in the Bible. No other uh, places for divorce where the divorce is itself not a violation of God's Word. And we can't add to this list. We can't, with biblical authority, go beyond this list. Some of you, by conviction, uh, uh, have, have, have stricter con- uh, beliefs about this and would be happier if I was farther towards the no divorce, no remarriage issue. We cannot go, in my opinion, farther than this. So, I want to end this morning... Uh, by sharing some resolutions, if I can, to fence our thinking about marriage and divorce. I want to share with you four resolutions that I would like to be true of our congregation. This is the sort of congregation that I would like for us to have as we follow Christ together as brothers and sisters. All right, four resolutions I'll share with you. Number one, we receive marriage as one of God's good gifts. We receive marriage as one of God's good gifts. I'm not going to say much more about this. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. Uh, other than, than I want to note that, that this is against the cultural tide in our day that seeks to delay marriage and perpetuate adolescence. Nowadays, if you read newspapers or magazines, you're now considered an adolescent until you're 25 years old, if not 35 years old. Uh, we think that's terrible. We have a number of young men in our congregation and our consistent message to them is that it's time to grow up, get a job, and find a wife in that order. All right? Get thee a wife. God's will. All right? Number two, uh, we welcome through Jesus Christ anyone who comes. I want this to be true of our congregation. 
We welcome through Jesus Christ anyone who comes. We welcome because of the grace of God uh, married people, single people, divorced people, struggling people. Don't you want to be a, a part of a church that when you turn the corner down there at the end of the driveway to come up, you look at the building and, and your thought is, that's a place where people are welcome. Anybody who wants can find a welcome in that building from the people there. Don't you want to be belong to a church like that? There, it's popular in some large cities. You can find places called oxygen bars. Uh, they're restaurants or they're bars where they pressurize the building so that it's filled, they fill it with oxygen. So the, high, the oxygen in that room is higher than the concentration of oxygen everywhere else. It's supposed to be good for your health and supposed to give you a, a natural high feeling. I want our church to be pressurized by, by grace. Do you want to go to a congregation like that? Where the, the concentration of grace is higher here? That, that if you're struggling with your marriage, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with homosexuality, and even if you're struggling with judgmentalism against people who have struggled with pornography, divorce, or homosexuality, that you're welcome here because of Christ. Number three, we encourage one another to pursue healthy and vital marriages. It's a resolution for us about divorce and remarriage. We encourage one another to pursue healthy and vital marriages. If you want that to happen in your life through our congregation, you have to be involved in, in the life of the church. Your, your marriage cannot be strengthened by attending uh, services, Sunday services alone. You have to get involved in some other way. Uh, join a small group or get in a Sunday school class. Uh, do you have someone to talk to when things are, are tough in your relationship? Because they will be. Do you have somebody that you could talk to about that? Uh, number four here, resolution number four, we will speak the truth in love to those wandering from God's ways. We will speak the truth in love to those wandering from God's ways. This is the balancing side to encouraging healthy marriages. Our church covenant says, we will admonish and rebuke one another as occasion may require. Sometimes we have to confront people about what they're doing, about what they're walking away from. And James 5 says, you who turn a sinner back from his ways uh, uh, covers a multitude of sins. Some of you have fought hard for your marriages. And our commitment as, as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we're going to help you fight hard for your marriage, even if it means getting in your way when you run away from your marriage. So, this is a difficult issue. Talking about divorce and remarriage is hard. No one enjoys doing it. But we do it because we love what God says. We love what God has made. We treasure His commands. And we treasure what He says chiefly because we treasure Him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before You this morning and we have looked at these passages in Your Word and, and for some, they have uh, awakened uh, regrets and sorrow and, and shame uh, today. And they have awakened in some uh, concern. And they have awakened questions in some that are here this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that chiefly when we deal with these, these issues, that you would help us to speak truthfully 
and that you would help us to speak graciously. How glad we are for the fountain that is filled with blood, the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, who washes sins away. Help us to speak of one another and to one another so that when we see each other in heaven, we're not embarrassed. Give us grace. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would guard the marriages represented in our congregation, that you would help us to guard our spirits so that we might pursue uh, what is right, what is in your good pleasure and your good purposes. Uh, this is a, uh, an area in life, Father, in which we fail. So help us. Help our congregation to be an oasis of refreshing uh, renewal and, and healing and truth in this broken, backward world in which we live. If, if that's going to happen for us, we're going to need your grace, which is why we pray and come to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.